Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, where you'll get actionable tips and advice on major gifts, direct response fundraising, legacy giving, and much more from leading experts in the nonprofit sector. Before we get into today's episode, I've got three important updates for you. If you want to increase your success with mid-level and major gift fundraising, you need to grab a copy of Rainmaking, the Fundraiser's Guide to Landing Big Gifts. This book is in use by more than 3,000 nonprofits and has helped raise over a quarter of a billion dollars for charitable causes since 2013. As a leader and practitioner in the nonprofit sector, you may also be looking for a guide to help you navigate some of the biggest challenges that you face. That's why in 2019, I brought together 28 key leaders and fundraisers from across our sector to share their insights and help leaders like you avoid making costly mistakes. My newest book, 101 Biggest Mistakes Nonprofits Make and How You Can Avoid Them, is currently in the hands of more than 1,500 nonprofit leaders, helping them to navigate those key challenges. It can help you too. And you can get either of these resources or both of them simply by going out to Amazon today. The third thing that I've got for you is a request. If you enjoy this podcast and the conversations we have, I'd greatly appreciate you going out to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen and doing two things. If you can go out and give us a rating, then write us a brief review, I'd really appreciate it. Those two things help us find other listeners and they help me continue to secure great guests that'll bring valuable content and insights to you. So please take a minute today to go out and give us a rating and a quick review. It'll only take a minute to do. Thanks so much. Hey, everyone. I am so excited to be here today with Bill Hyde, the founder and executive chairman of The Signatory, uh, where he's on a mission to teach individuals and families how the ideas of generosity and legacy work together to unite families around mission and values that will help them thrive for generations. Prior to founding The Signatory, Bill was a successful practicing attorney and also founded iDonate, one of the leading online donation platforms in the nonprofit industry. He's authored or co-authored a dozen books, many of which are focused on the topics of generosity and legacy. Bill, welcome to the show today. Thanks so much, Andrew. Glad to be with you. Hey, man, appreciate you uh, doing this with us today. Before we get started, I'd, I'd love if you take a, a few minutes and share a little bit more about your personal story and, and also tell us a little bit more about the signatory. Yeah, happy to. You, uh, of course, gave the introduction that I practiced law for 12 years, but I always like to back that story up a little bit because I didn't start that way. My dad was the oldest of eight, grew up in a three-room log cabin, so you can do the math on how they had to spread those kids out. Wow. Very poor family, very rough background. He joined the service went over to Japan post-Korean War, met my mom, brought her back here to the States, and together they had six kids. I was fifth out of six. We were a dirt poor family, welfare family, the whole bit. We got gifts from the Salvation Army at Christmas. Uh, so it was a pretty dysfunctional kind of background. And then it was about eight, nine years old when a family down the street brought me a children's Bible storybook. And that was my first exposure to this idea of faith that there was a God and that I was not. And that really began to change everything for me. My dad died a couple years later. He had cancer. Um, he was also a heavy drinker and alcoholic, uh, all of that kind of stuff. But again, I had the good fortune of having a brother about that time who had come to his own personal faith. And he came back and actually started showing me how to read this, read the scriptures. And so I had a good grounding in faith, even by the time I was in high school. And that really was my springboard on into the rest of my next couple journeys, going to wow. undergraduate school, getting a degree in education, and then ultimately practice 
in law for the 12 years. So that's a little bit of the background. <laughs> that's a little bit of the background, but that's a, that's a great story. Um, wow. And, and so you, you went from practicing law to, to founding the signatory. Tell, tell us more about that. Yeah. And, you know, always because of the background that I had, I always had a passion for families. Okay. And uh, it led into when I was practicing law, I'd been at the firm for seven, eight years, nine years, something like that. And it was like God was saying, hey, you need to go back and do the stuff that I told you to do, which is tend the flock of God. And so what I did is I started volunteering. I was on the front lines of urban ministry in Kansas City dealing with the gang population, the whole bit. And I ended up uh, getting involved with a guy who was a inner city pastor and helping him get his ministry to youth up off the ground. And as we started doing that, the group of people that I was working with, they were like, hey, we need to create something, some kind of foundation or something like that that would create more money for ministry. And that led into about a two-year, 18-month journey of trying to look for the right vehicle that could provide more funding for ministry. So we looked at the idea of starting a leadership foundation, which is something Reed Carpenter had pioneered years ago, and that really just made us a fundraising vehicle. So we stumbled into this idea of the donor-advised fund world. And as you know, Andrew, the donor advice fund is really the, the idea of the charitable bank. You can put money in, take a tax deduction, and use it to support the charities that you want. So we really stand in the middle of the donors and the charities. So we get to work on both sides of the fence. So for us, it was the perfect vehicle to not only serve the donor community, but also the ministry community and ultimately to create more money for ministry. So June of 2000, I left the law firm and was the first employee. It was a big startup venture with at what that time was known as the Christian Community Foundation in Kansas City. And that ultimately led to this journey over the years. We had some name changes. And uh, in April of 2018, we became known as the signatory. The signatory is the combination of the word signature and legacy. So the signatory <laughs> is that you sign your name to a great legacy. So if you can imagine the signers of the Declaration of Independence signing on to this idea of what does freedom look like? What does a free country look like? So there you go. That's the journey. That's how we got started. But it was really driven with this idea that ministry world and create impact in our community and ultimately the world. That's awesome. So uh, I want to get into some some uh, leadership topics with you. But before I do that, you know, the, the donor advised fund landscape seems to to be on fire right now. I mean, the 2020 with what was happened with COVID, you know, from everybody I've talked to, organizations and, and fundraisers, it seems like a lot of donors who had DAFs um, really started to lean into them. And those who didn't, um, you know, I've, I've heard a number of stories about people creating them and, and thinking differently about their, their philanthropy over the last year. Just in, you know, one or two quick anecdotes, if you could, what are you seeing right now and how is it different than, you know, the last couple of years? Well, to be honest, in the 20 years that I've been in the space, when I began, the Donor Advice Fund was really just starting to grow uh, in many respects. And the, the commercial providers entered this space. But really, even in the past 10 years, the world mushroomed. Even as few as 10 years ago, there are about 15,000 Donor Advice Fund accounts. And today, that number is over 800,000 donor advised fund accounts. Compare wow. that to 
80,000 private foundations. So the donor advice fund is the vehicle of choice for people who are looking to do their charitable giving. We see people bypass the private foundation idea all along. The, the criticism, of course, that's occurred in the donor advice fund space is really unwarranted. In private foundation space, there's a 5% minimum uh, distribution requirement. Donor advice fund, there, while there's no minimum distribution requirement, the truth is even in the commercial donor advice funds, the distribution rate's around 20%. Wow. In the, in the faith-based space, the world that we live in, it is often in the 60% rate. Hmm. So unfortunately, some of the news out there is not accurate, but at the end of the day, the point really is, is that the donor advice fund, fund space has been a great vehicle to solve some of the world's greatest problems and the needs that are occurring in the world today. I'm so glad to hear that. Thank you for sharing that with us. So let's get into some leadership topics. You know, you've worked with, I'm sure, many leaders over your career, um, leaders in organizations and nonprofits, but also business uh, leaders who, who come to you to, um, to seek guidance on, on their charitable giving. Uh, I'm wondering in your experience, you know, what have you seen are the most important values that successful leaders need to embrace? Yeah, that's a great question, Andrew. And fundamentally at the end of the day, it's three things that I see it from the great leaders. And of course I've been able to see it on the business side and the ministry side. Uh, and it's three things. It is humility, love and service. Those are the great ones, humility, love, and service. And the humility idea really stems from the idea that the story is never about you. You are part of a big story. And so when you realize the space that you fit in for the season of, of time and uh, that you have on this earth, and you realize that there are people who've gone before you and people who come after you, then you invest heavily in the people that are coming after you because you know that you get to continue that story. You get to write a good story. You get to tell a good story. And so that's what I see in the very best leaders that I work with. David Green from Hobby Lobby is one of the people that I've had the pleasure of being able to work with. And David always, he says, man, it's easy to be a CEO. Uh, I, I spend about two or three hours a month on being a CEO. The hardest job is actually putting the leaders in place who can do their job. And I've always been impressed with how much he lets those leaders do their job. And he gets to work on the stuff that he wants to work on, which is being a great merchant, figuring out how to buy and sell. And so that's one of the great ways that he serves his people. They have these co-manager meetings uh, every month, and he doesn't stand up and talk about the business. He doesn't stand up and talk about the great vision that he has. He says, man, our job is here to serve you. So let us know how we can help you do your job better. And that's really led to some of the innovations. And when you do those things, you really create this culture. Uh, and, and maybe it's uh, a dangerous word to say in this environment, but where people really feel loved and affirmed. Uh, and that's what I've seen over the years, that if we love our people, they'll run through brick walls for you because they know that they're cared for. They will stay on. They will not go anywhere. They're driven by passion and purpose, but ultimately the affirmation of saying, I belong and I have presence here. Yeah, that's great. No, I, I, I agree with you. I think the more that people feel cared for like that, I, I mean, I've always seen that um, have a positive impact on, on their ability to get work done and, and the organizations they serve being able to succeed. So it makes a lot of sense. Um, from a personal perspective, I'm curious if you could share um, you know, an example of maybe 
one of the most significant leadership crises you've ever faced. And, and I'm really interested in learning what you learned about yourself in that process. Yeah, I mean, they, I, I did a study a number of years ago where I looked back on my life in 10-year periods. Uh, and in those 10-year periods, I looked at the question of who are the people and the events and the ideas that most shaped me. Hmm. And out of that, one of the things that I saw were all these themes where God was pushing me into leadership. I was the reluctant leader. I was never the guy that was a swashbuckling guy with a sword in his teeth that says, let's go and let's attack. It was, I was thrust into leadership. And so one of my earliest examples of that is when I was still practicing law. And we had a case where the senior partner, you know, it was his case, but he really looked to me to make the decisions. And we were on the verge of having to go to trial with virtually no preparation. We were in front of the judge. And the judge was like, you need to tell me some reason why we're not going to go to trial on Monday. And nobody was wanting to do that. It, it would have been a disaster. But everybody was quiet, including the opposition side. And I had to step up and say, judge, here's what I think we need to do. Here's the plan. One, two, three, four. And the judge looked at me, and I was the youngest guy in the room, and said, that's the plan we're going to follow. <laughs> and it's those kind of situations that I've been thrust into over the years. A number of years back, um, I stepped into a situation here where I was trying to move away some of the things that I was doing. And it didn't go well, frankly. I mean, it really led to disruption of the team. We were going to lose some people and the like. And I had to step in and really give leadership to a situation that was difficult in our own organization. I tried to pull back probably too much. And the thing that I learned in that is that when you're in those kind of times of crisis, people are not necessarily looking for you to answer with certainty what's going to happen. They just need to know that you've got a plan on how it will go forward. And you lead with confidence uh, and you lead with love and say, guys, here's where we're going. This is what we can do with what we have right now. And when you lead with that kind of clarity of purpose and plan, people will follow you into the unknown, which is very much like the times that we're in right now. There's a lot of unknown. For sure. Hey, hey, guys, here's what we can do with what we have. They'll follow. Great. Um, the next question I have is, you know, we often talk about the importance of storytelling and fundraising. And you mentioned it even a few minutes ago as we were first starting to speak. Um, how does storytelling factor into leadership development, in your opinion? Yeah, I always say that the people who tell stories uh, are telling you ultimately their values. So oftentimes we do some work with families and we say to them, what are the 10 stories, the 10 life stories that you most need to tell. Hmm. Because within those stories are ultimately the emotion of great loss, great victory, um, the humor, the laughter. And it's though within those stories that you get all the emotion and the contagiousness of leadership. Hmm. Because people will feel a value before they can even articulate it. If they can lean in and see your passion and energy around an idea, then that's where they say, that made me feel something and I can follow that. And that's what we're trying to create. The best leaders are the storytellers in my mind, because they're the ones that get people to lean in and say, 
I don't know what it was, but I sure felt something. <laughs> I want to be part of that. And so when you put your finger on that pulse point, the, the raw nerve, and then people will say, I'm in. Let me in for some of that. I don't know what it was, <laughs> but I'm in. I love so, that. Yeah. Cool. Um, talk a little bit, if you will, about the, the leader's role in shaping and cultivating culture. And I'd love if you could share an example of where you've seen it kind of at best. The, obviously, it, it is the leader who shapes the culture. Organizations take on the character of the leader in some way, shape, or form. And so, again, if you just step back a moment to where you were, the idea of storytelling is one of those places where you begin to create culture. In our organization, of course, as a donor advice fund organization, we're out meeting and talking to people a lot. And so one of the things that we teach our people to start with is not with the what, who is the signatory or what is a donor advice fund or even here's why you should have one. But we always start with the question of, hey, tell us your story. <laughs> and you then listen to that. And you listen really hard, listen to the story. So tell me your story and within that story. And now, by the way, when we ask that question, people will say, so where should I start? What do you mean? Where, how do you want me to start? Do you mean like when I was a kid or my professional life or where do you want me to go? And we always say to them is, well, just start wherever you want. And what you'll find is that people will typically choose the safest part of their story mm. to start with. And then when they do that, because they start with something safe, it's always amazing to me how you, they will move to places in their story that nobody else knows about. Now, keep mm. in mind, in a part of the world that we're in, we're living with people with their money and their finances and financial statements. And in many cases, information that they've never even told their kids. So it's amazing how many times people are like, I've never told anybody that ever. And yet here they are sometimes in a very first meeting simply because you're telling them the story. And so I give that all to you and say, how does that begin to shape culture when you become this kind of storytelling organization. And what I think you find is that we become people who ask good questions and we become good listeners uh, and we draw out where people are at, the very heart and soul of who people are as an organization. So it comes back to some of those first things that I said at the very beginning. People want to be known and they want to be understood and they want to be cared for. And so when you ask those kind of questions, they're like, huh, okay, that feels good because somebody knows me and this is a safe kind of place to be in. So that's what we strive for as an organization. And again, the best organizations kind of always seem to have that sense of calm that it's okay to be who I am. I can live out my calling inside of this organization. Thank you. Um, you know, you, you talked a little bit, mentioned already sort of the tumultuous times we're in. What guidance are you giving to nonprofit leaders right now? You know, so many are concerned about the pandemic, um, racial inequality issues, um, political, you know, strife in the country. 
what what do those conversations look like and sound like uh, that you're having right now? It it is a difficult time. I actually just wrote a blog. We we've got a blog coming out about predictions for 2021. And there is no question whether you are on the faith side of things or otherwise, everybody believes that we're in a period of the politicization of the nonprofit world. Uh, and even yesterday there, uh, I think it was yesterday that you know, there's this whole move to um, accelerate charitable giving out of private foundations and donor advice funds, which as an aside, I don't think is wise at all. Maybe we come back to that and talk, but then there's this whole move. I'm not sure if you saw this, Andrew, about um, an Illinois congre congressman said, let's remove all references to God and culture. I did not see that. Wow. Yeah, it's a crazy kind of um, idea, uh, the whole cancel culture kind of mentality. And it doesn't really matter where, where you're at on this side of the discussion, whether you would say I'm a person of faith or I'm right or left of the line, it doesn't matter. The, at the end of the day, the reason why we need to be concerned about this is we've been a nation that's built on the idea that we want to promote conversation. And we want to have constructive conversation. And when we begin to say, now I'm not going to listen to that conversation, or we've got to shut that out. Um, and even the painful parts of our history, if we said those are, we're just not going to deal with those, we shut off this powerful conversation about what the future can look like. So I'm deeply concerned about things that I see, this whole idea of uh, the business world that we're going to, not only are we going to force businesses to take stances, moral stances, it used to be the idea that business is business, mm -hmm. we'll let the social issues work themselves out. Now we're actually in a place where we're forcing businesses to take social stances. I don't think that's wise, but even worse, we're in a place where, uh, you know, man, if you don't hold the right social view, then we're going to pull services from you. I've had businesses that I know where they've been debanked or they have wow. payment systems. And is that really the kind of culture we want to create? Um, the hate is not charitable campaign is deeply concerning. Uh, the idea that um, if you show up on particular organizations, hate groups list that you're going to uh, not be supported. And, and again, you know, I mean, take groups like that. one of the groups on the hate group list is a group called Catholic Family Matters or the Young Republicans of Texas. Mm. I don't know about you, but those don't sound like hate groups to me. Right. Yeah. So we want to say, let's pull all that funding and tell the whole world that you shouldn't give those. Those are, again, deeply concerning kind of things that we need to be careful of. And now, you know, we're starting to see the language around, we're going to take, take away tax exempt status. Again, if you hold certain beliefs. Um, there are groups, by the way, out there on the fringe and the extreme, certainly groups that were even part of the whole 9-11 era that lost their tax exempt status, rightly so. But the move that we're making of starting to take in more mainstream some of these ideas is a dangerous one. So what we're saying to nonprofit leaders is you really need to make sure that you're aware of these issues and do not accept the headlines. Hmm. So let me pause here because one of the issues that, that I do think is important is the whole idea of the 
acceleration of charitable giving. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've seen that, the idea that we want to force private foundations and donor-advised funds to give out more. Yeah. Well, one, it's not really true about donor-advised funds. Donor-advised funds give out way more on a percentage basis than private foundations. But secondly, think about it. If we said, hey, guys, you need to empty out your corpus, what happens when the next crisis comes? Who's going to fund it? Are we going to look to the government again? And I don't think we want the government to be our source of funding in the next crisis because we're setting our grandkids and great-grandkids up for somebody's got to pay the debt. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think it's a terrible idea to assume that the government's going to take that on. And, uh, but, it, but it does feel like that's where a lot of the conversation is headed is, is people assuming that, you know, the problems are quote unquote too big for the private sector, too big for the charitable sector, and therefore the government needs to step in. And, you know, I don't know about you, but there, there's a fairly small list of things that I feel like government has done really well when they've stepped into other, other areas that, you know, aren't their primary uh, areas of concern. So I, I have deep concerns about that. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's a dangerous place to go. Well, I mean, let's come back to the idea too. Let's say we force the private foundation world to empty out their corpus or even to give away half of their endowment money. One, you don't recover that through investment income over time. But second, do we actually really have enough strategy around solving mm-hmm. the world's problems? We've seen organizations in the nonprofit space, like it or not, that if they get too much money dumped on them real quickly, they can't handle it. So, you know, it's uh, one of the great, the, the American democracy really started out as a big idea, a set of virtues. So when we live out those virtues, it's a much easier way to live as opposed to saying government can solve our problems. Agreed. So I think this is a time in history where maybe what we need to do is come back to the table, engage in this very civil, productive kind of conversation and say, what problems in the world are we going to solve? And how do we do that? That's not necessarily organizationally based. That's based upon an idea. And then we say, who's going to participate in solving those problems? Yeah, I, that makes sense. I agree. All right. So last question before I let you go today. Um, you know, I know in your work, you have a lot of conversations about uh, succession planning, legacy planning, uh, both for individuals and families. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I see in the nonprofit sector is oftentimes leaders are really reluctant to lean into their own, you know, succession planning and, and their own legacy planning organizationally. What have you learned about this topic that might be helpful to, to those nonprofit leaders who, who are reluctant to have that conversation and think about that in a deep way? Yeah, I put this question on the table earlier, but here's the way you frame that question. What story do you want to tell? Hmm. What story do you want to tell? So if you think about the nonprofits or even the businesses or churches that have done succession well, that list doesn't appear to be very long. But I think perhaps if those leaders would have asked the question, what story do you want to tell, then they might have done some of that succession differently. Because if, you know, the story is, well, Andrew, you led your organization and then, you know, the board forced you out because you were getting too old or you were getting too grumpy or we really didn't make the change and you stormed off with your people and started a new organization. That's not a great story to tell. Uh, It's just not. 
And then think about it, you know, if, you know, someday you're sitting on the porch and your rocking chair and you're telling your grandkids, yeah, I started this organization and the board kicked me out and, you know, and you tell the story of resentment and then I started something new and it never quite arrived at the same place where I'd been. I don't think anybody wants to tell that story. And so if we say, no, I started an organization or I was the second one in and it grew and I handed it off and I developed this person. That's a great story. And I just think that's one of the big things. And, and you know, by the way, we're, we have been in the midst of this, the signatory. This is something that's personal to me. I have been the CEO and the founder, but I just took on the role, the title of executive chairman and founder. So we've been in process. This is something that I've asked my board to do and to push towards. And I've just believed that it's good for the health of the organization. I could have easily continued to hold on to the CEO title. I'm not, you know, at an age where, you know, I should let go. But for the health of the organization and for the development of the younger people in our organization, we don't have all the answers. Uh, I do think we know what the 10-year plan is. We have the person that is been, has been elevated to CEO and president. But we also know that we've got that next leader maybe another five years behind that. So we have enough in place that you'll never answer all the questions uh, of you know, what's it going to look like? And, you know, are they going to be everything that I was? All that kind of stuff. It's very difficult to follow founders or strong leaders, but the power of being able to let go and to let others step up and lead it, one, it says to, hey, man, I was never the answer, uh, the whole answer. I was just part of a story. So that's where that humility factor comes into play. And the idea then of serving your people and say, man, you can step in here and you can elevate and you can do some things that I didn't do. So the power of doing that is just incredible when that occurs, right? So I think the challenge to the nonprofit world and to leaders at large, many of these organizations I think you know are led by boomers, aging boomers who need to be thinking about letting go. And so there, the, the more that we prepare that next gen, the better off we're going to be. Awesome. Bill, thank you so much for uh, being here today. Thanks for sharing your wisdom with us. Really appreciate you. If someone wants to, to reach out to you, what's the best way for people to connect with you? Yeah, they can certainly go to the Signatory website, thesignatory.com, or they can shoot me an email, bhigh, how do you like that? Bhigh <laughs> at thesignatory.com, signatory, S-I-G-N-A-T-R-Y.com. I've got a personal website where I do some of my blogging and writing, billhigh.com, and they can find me there. So any of those places, always happy to talk to people about their leadership journey or any way that we can serve. Wonderful. Thank you again so much. Really appreciate you being here. Yep. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. Please take a moment to rate this episode on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate this episode, it will help more nonprofit leaders just like you to help find us and get the information that they need to raise more funds for their organization. Thanks again for listening today.